You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. It is a joy and an honor for me to be with you this morning. Um, I am a church planting resident, like Reed said, uh, which means that Lord willing, here in the next couple of years, I'll be planting a new Sojourn church uh, in another neighborhood of Houston called Brazewood Place, if you've ever heard of it, directly south of here. Um, by God's grace, that kind of that clarity has come in the past couple of months, and so we're pretty excited about it. Um, we, uh, but yes, and also, um, I've been a, so I've been at Sojourn Heights, a covenant member at Sojourn Heights for six years now, almost six years, and been a resident there for two years, and I'm about to transition on April 1st, so next week, uh, to Sojourn Galleria with Taylor to to spend a season uh, of my residency with him. So, uh, again, if this is your first time here, you don't have any idea what I'm talking about, but glad you're here. Um, we look forward to getting to know you. Um, today we are continuing our series through Lamentations. The book of Lamentations uh, is a book where, where the prophet Jeremiah uh, walks through, like Reed said, poem after poem, uh, five chapters in all, crying out with sorrow and grief um, at what has befallen his people of Israel. Uh, the city of Jerusalem has fallen. Last week uh, in chapter three, Jeremiah uh, reached the peak of his lament. We saw this. Um, and in the peak of his lament, the only solace that he could find for himself was to force himself to turn and reflect upon the great faithfulness of God and his steadfast love. Um, it's a difficult but beautiful chapter that we looked at last week. Um, and uh, reading the book of Lamentations is a little bit like climbing a mountain. Um, it would be nice to climb to the top of the mountain and have someone come pick you up and bring you to the bottom, but uh, we find today that Jeremiah is not done with lamenting. He keeps going. Um, and I'll confess that, that a number of times this week I've, I've thought, uh, man, I could really go for Easter this week. Um, I could really, uh, I would be okay with being done with Lamentations. Um, but we're doing a series on revival that I'm looking forward to in a couple of months. We're doing a couple of Paul's epistles later in the year. Um, and as I'm thinking through what I'm looking forward to um, and how I'd love for Lamentations to be over, um, uh, this thought process has been exactly what the Lord's been teaching me in this season, particularly this week, through Lamentations 4. Um, not that Easter, the New Testament, aren't good and glorious things, uh, but that I don't really like to lament. Um, I took a personality test. Uh, uh, I'm a joyful, I, I, I tell jokes to ease, to alleviate pain, um, and, uh, which I guess is what I'm doing right now, but I don't like to lament. It's been, it, it's, it, it has really though, it has been a hard week. I'm thankful for what the Lord's teaching me. Uh, he's been teaching me and, I, and, I'm, and I'm thankful for the, the, what he's given me to, t- to tell you guys this morning. But I, I do ask that you would bear with me as we dive in. Um, my goal this morning is not to do line by line through all 22 verses. There's a lot in the, in the scripture that I'm not gonna even mention uh, this morning. Um, and so please forgive me for that, but, but I hope that, that what we do today um, will provide kind of a, a basis, a little bit of fodder for your own personal time uh, in Lamentations, which as, as Christians in Houston and particularly have been at Sojourn for a long time, at Sojourn we could really use uh, uh, extended seasons in the book of Lamentations, really over the, 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 the rest of our lives. But let me pray for us and we'll jump in. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your church. Thank you for one another. Pray that you would bring clarity to us. Um, you would fix our eyes on Jesus through this text. Um, 
God, in my mind, um, there are people, I know that there are people suffering outside this room because of the sins of those inside this room, uh, myself included. And, and I ask, we ask that you would forgive us for our sins. Teach us to lament, uh, to not brush past uh, the patient work that you're doing in our lives uh, and help us to lean into you as you do that work. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, alcoholism uh, is tragic. Alcoholism, uh, it runs in both sides of my family. Uh, it's a consuming addiction uh, that over time, through a series of bad choices combined with other factors, uh, can really take over a person's life. Uh, you've probably heard of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, known as AA. Uh, there's uh, other uh, groups, Celebrate Recovery, Narcotics Anonymous, that use similar strategies to, to, uh, to work with people through recovery from addiction. Um, you might have been involved with a program at some point. You might be in one right now. Um, what these programs, uh, what AA does um, is it goes through what's called a 12-step program, which you might have heard of. Uh, if you've ever heard someone say step one is acknowledging that you have a problem, um, that is the first uh, of this 12-step program that AA, I think, wrote a book on in, back in the 1930s. Um, and it's been used ever since by recovery groups. Um, and I think if, you, if you've never seen those 12 steps, I highly encourage you at some point, you can Google 12 steps. Um, and uh, it's, it's really illuminating. Uh, it's not um, step one, acknowledge that you have a problem. Step two, uh, celebrate that you've acknowledged it and then move on with your life. Um, it's a very thorough, important uh, uh, process that walks through uh, recovery, and I think that the, the founders, is, if you look through the steps, you see that the founders were onto something. All right, that, that recovering from an addiction is a process that can't be short-circuited. Uh, there's no pill you can take, uh, no spell that you can say uh, to rescue yourself from addiction. Um, and it's not just the case with addiction. Recovery itself, in general, is always a process, uh, whether you're recovering from injury uh, physical, mental, spiritual, whether you are uh, fighting to see restoration in your battle against sin, whatever it is that you're wrestling with, recovery is a process. Um, we know this to be true. Um, to give a simple example, when I broke my leg as a kid, um, I didn't get a cast on and then go back out onto the soccer field. Um, I took a little bit of time to let the bone heal. And then when I got the cast off, I still didn't go back out onto the soccer field. Uh, because I needed to do physical therapy so that the muscles could loosen, so that I could build up muscular strength due to the atrophy um, of being in a cast. Uh, and I'm thankful um, uh, that I had a mom and a physical therapist who walked me through this process because uh, I know that if I'd tried to short-circuit this process, that I could have injured myself even worse. Um, and that is often what happens. Um, if you have wrestled with uh, substance abuse or if you've known someone who has, um, uh, you know that this is true. Um, if you've ever wrestled with sin, seriously, you know that this is true. What we see throughout the book of Lamentations uh, is that all brokenness in the world, all suffering, all need of recovery points to the deepest fracture that needs restoration. And that the deepest fracture in the world uh, is, is the fractured relationship between us and God uh, because of our sin, because of our idolatry. There's no, uh, there's no 12-step process uh, to restoring this relationship. Um, there's no 12 steps to get saved. Um, but 
the book of Lamentations gives us a couple of things that we can take away and use and be encouraged by in the process of restoration as we battle against sin and idolatry. Here in Jeremiah, 4, or, uh, Jeremiah chapter 4, I think we have an important piece of the recovery process because rather than referring in general to the concepts of sin and idolatry kind of in an abstract sense, Jeremiah uh, turns and gets specific with what brought God's people to where they are. Uh, if they just looked at their suffering and pain and said, okay, okay, we get it, we were wrong, uh, but failed to truly engage with the root cause of what happened, then uh, in the end, nothing would change. And so he goes through uh, the specifics patiently, uh, painfully, as he laments. And today, uh, in this kind of bird's eye view of this text, I want to go through three main points. First, uh, we're going to look at a broken value system, the broken value system that God's people had. Second, we're going to look at why disordered values are such a problem. And then third, um, we're going to look at what God does about it and maybe try to draw out a little bit of application for us today. And so let's uh, begin with uh, point one, this broken value system. And the first question I want to ask um, is why? Why did all of this happen uh, in the first place? Why all of this suffering? Uh, because here's the thing, Israel knew that their judgment was coming. We've talked about this every week uh, up to this point in this series. God had promised through Moses in Deuteronomy 28, that's almost a thousand years before this happened, before this event happened. Um, God had promised that uh, basically in Deuteronomy 28, if his people obeyed his commandments, um, that they would receive blessing. Um, and if they disobeyed his commandments, if they sinned, that they would receive judgment. Um, and the question is why? Right? Why did Israel continue to sin? If, it seems as though if you're presented with two options, do this and be blessed and do this and be cursed, that you would pick whatever it is that would get the blessing. Um, but repeatedly, uh, Israel did not do that. And so why? Um, to put it simply, uh, at a risk of overgeneralizing, um, I want to say, to put it simply, as I think we'll see in Jeremiah 4, um, her value system was off. Israel's value system uh, was off. Look with me at verse 1. Uh, like at the beginning of chapters 1 and 2, Jeremiah begins with the word how. Jeremiah is inviting the reader, inviting his, his people to look with him at what has taken place. Picture a prophet. Uh, dressed in rags, having been crying for weeks and weeks, walking down the streets past dead bodies, dying children. And this prophet writes, how the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold has changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. Pause there. The temple, uh, the center of Jerusalem, where God dwelled with his people has been destroyed. And its components, these holy stones, had been cast out to the head of every street. Right, this most precious building, the religious, the national center of God's people, Israel, um, has been broken up and scattered uh, into the, in the streets. Right from this very first verse, we see that God is taking things away that were valuable to his people. And the rest of the chapter essentially follows this theme, um, works uh, it out in a way that shows that God's judgment came to all of society from the least to the greatest, uh, targeting what had become most valuable to them. And so let's trace through this briefly. What did God's people value? There's four main parts, like read, read. Um, and each of these parts addresses a particular group of people showing through God's judgment of that people what was valuable to them. In the first part, verses one through six, Jeremiah points to all of Israel. He refers to them as the precious sons of Zion in verse two. 
God valued his people like fine gold, and he had given his people a lot of gold. He had given them a lot of material wealth. And what did they use their gold for? Verse 5, we see that they feasted on delicacies. They clothed themselves in purple, which was the most expensive of the colored dyes uh, in biblical times. So they, they dined well, they dressed well, they loved their wealth, and they loved using it for their own enjoyment and for their own exaltation. And as a result, what has God done with it? Verse 1, how the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed. Verse 2, speaking of God's people who were once worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots. Jerusalem's wealth has become completely worthless. As a result, rather than feasting on the delicacies that they were uh, uh, accustomed to affording for themselves, uh, they perished in the streets from hunger. Their children were starving. Rather than clothing themselves in fine purple clothing, they embraced piles of ashes as garments, chastising them, as it's referred to in verse 6, uh, chastising them, God points at their gold, at their wealth, as if to say, I gave that to you so that you could use it for good, but now you worship it instead of me. So he takes it away. In the second part of the passage, uh, we go to verses 7 through 12. Jeremiah turns to look at the princes of God's people. The original word, uh, the word in the, in the Hebrew is Nazarites, um, which is a word that you might be familiar with if you're familiar with the story of Samson. Uh, in, this, in the book of Judges, Samson was a Nazarite, um, a set-apart one for the Lord. These princes uh, were the highly esteemed. They were the celebrities uh, in their culture, right? Verse 7, they were purer than snow, whiter than milk. This referred to religious purity. These were set apart by God for, to be holy uh, and religious, religiously pure. When it says their bodies were more ruddy than coral, this was a phrase that pointed to the complexion of their skin. It was a reddish color like coral that indicated health, fullness, and strength. Right? And their beauty was like sapphire. So they were for the people a picture. These princes were a picture of everything that they wanted to be. They were pure. They were healthy and strong. They were beautiful. And as a result, they were celebrities. They were acclaimed by all. But here again, we see God's judgment come for what they valued. Giving, verse 11, full vent to his wrath, and pouring out his hot anger, Jeremiah describes in verse 8 that God stripped them of their purity. And stricken with hunger and thirst, they shriveled away, uh, becoming unrecognizable. Because they had come to value acclamation and recognition over God himself, they watched their celebrities become nobodies in the streets, unrecognizable uh, in their shame. In the third part of this passage, verses 12 through 16, Jeremiah turns to the prophets and priests Right, the religious leaders of Israel. Central to the identity of God's people uh, is just that, that they were God's people. The prophets had, uh, had eyes to see God's will for their lives, and the priests carried out the sacrificial law in order to ensure that the, God's people remained clean, religiously clean. Uh, but the prophets and priests had led the people astray. The people lived their lives as a result, as though they didn't even if they didn't follow God's law exactly, that they were okay as long as they showed up in the temple to worship. They showed what they really valued was just religious position, right? Their, their religious privilege, not their relationship with God. And as a result, Jeremiah shows how God takes these leaders who had led his people astray and brings them to open shame. Verse 14, we see how these prophets and priests, these seers and cleaners, right, of God's people, and he makes them blind and defiled, these leaders who were supposed to be honored 
uh, had received dishonor, and not, not from people, but from the Lord himself, verse 16. And the fourth part of the passage, like I said, it's a flyby. Fourth part of the passage, verses 17 through 22, Jeremiah turns back to Israel as a whole, showing how as a community they failed together, uh, even in their last hope, even in their final moments, uh, when they knew the end had come. Verse 18, rather than looking to God for salvation, they placed your, their trust in their political leader, King Jehoiakim, right? The Lord's anointed, as Jeremiah refers to him in verse 20, was the very breath in their lungs, and they looked to him, trusting that they could dwell secure under his shadow. And what was his plan? Jehoiakim uh, had allied with Egypt, who had promised to protect them, right? Which, an alliance which was actually the, the instigator for Babylon and, uh, the Babylonian invasion. Uh, so, so their king had allied with Egypt. Egypt had said they would protect Israel. But when Babylon came to lay siege to Jerusalem as God's means of pouring out his judgment on his people, uh, verse 17, our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. Jeremiah mocks the people. Our eyes failed. Watching, we watched. Just the, the vanity of the watching, looking hopelessly for a nation that couldn't save them. Egypt never came to the rescue. And as a result, the Babylonian, the Babylonian invasion was a success and King Jehoiakim was, verse 20, captured in their pits. Without a king, without a nation, God's people are left suffering. So what, according to Lamentations 4, uh, did the people value? They valued wealth. They valued recognition. They valued religious privilege. And they valued, really, political security. God had, peop God had given his people these good gifts. None of those four things are bad things in and of themselves. Right? God had given his people these good gifts, uh, but his people had fallen in love with the gifts themselves, detaching them from their giver and twisted them to set up their own value system. And through the ruin of each of these groups of people, we see God systematically dismantling the value system of his people, demonstrating for them that his values are not their values. Right, that they've missed the point altogether. Rather than earning honor and security, they've earned judgment and destruction. Why is having the wrong value system such a big deal, though? Move on to point two. Why is having the wrong value system such a big deal? Really, having the wrong value system is the essence of idolatry. Here's what I mean. Often when you think of idolatry, you think of someone bowing down to a statue or a carved image or something like that. Um, but even here, uh, in the Old Testament uh, times, when idol worship, bowing down to idols, was much more prevalent in mainstream culture, um, even here we see that idolatry ran deeper than that. At its root, idolatry, which is worshiping things other than God, is not always about valuing bad things, uh, but it's also about valuing good things too much valuing good things more than we value God so that we try to make God fit into our pursuit of these other things instead of letting our pursuit of God let everything else in our lives fall into place. And once we fall into idolatry, everything breaks. First, idols tend to multiply themselves. Right? Timothy Keller, pastor, recently retired pastor in New York, um, Timothy Keller once said, very aptly, the human heart is an idol factory. The human heart is an idol factory, and I think he hit the nail on the head, right? We are always only one thought away from elevating something that we love higher than God. The human heart is an idol factory. 
Um, and the thing is, once we treat one thing as more valuable than God, that multiplies. What's to stop us from doing that with a second thing and with a third thing and with a fourth thing and then start all of a sudden our entire value system falls apart. Everything breaks. Idols multiply themselves. Second thing, though, uh, is really that idolatry is the foundation for all sin. Romans 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament writes uh, what's called the universal indictment of humanity. Romans chapters 1 through 3. It's a pretty, uh, it's the, the first part of Romans, which is Paul's kind of most explicit. It's a beautiful book, the book of Romans. But right at the beginning, he goes through and he says, this is what's wrong with us. Right? This is what's wrong with humanity and why we needed a savior. And in Romans 1, Paul explains why the wrath of God is coming against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. He says in verses 21 through 23, he says, all of this ungodliness has happened for although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The reason for all human depravity is traced back to the first thing in the list, the first thing that Paul says here, man exchanged the glory of God for things that looked like him, things that looked like what we like. And Paul goes on, therefore, because this idol worship, because idolatry has happened, he goes on to list just a multitude of sins. Therefore, God gave them up to their sins. Why are humans given over to sin, to lust, uh, to impurity? Because of idolatry. Idolatry always leads to sin, and sin always leads to suffering and injustice. And think about this for just a moment. Who does injustice tend to hit hardest? Who suffers uh, when idolatry runs rampant? Uh, You see, with God as the focus, life is oriented towards others, how we can serve others, how we can care for others. But with anything else as our focus, with anything other than God as our focus, life becomes a competition, right? Competition oriented around us and what we can get and how much we can win. And when it becomes about how much I can win, then there must be a loser, And usually, uh, the loser is the poor, the loser is the helpless, the outsider. One comparison um, that'll help this, I just use this because we recently went through this at Sojourn. Matthew chapter 21, Jesus, there's a story of Jesus cleansing the temple. He'd ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey, uh, and he cleanses the temple. He he walks in and sees that the, the temple had become a marketplace. Why? God's people loved money. Uh, because of their love of money, uh, they had turned God's, God's house of worship, the place where the nations were, to, were able to draw near to God and worship him, they turned it into a marketplace and were extorting money from these outsiders. And the detail in that story that I want to point out is Jesus flipped over the table of two particular groups, two particular groups of people, right? the money changers and the pigeon salesmen. Um, who did they affect? Right? The money changers were there to provide a service for foreigners. If you didn't have the currency of the temple, you had to come exchange your money for the currency of the temple. That was for people who were coming from far away, foreigners, outsiders. Pigeon salesmen, who was was that practice affecting? Uh, In in God's, in in the Mosaic law, the ceremonial law, the the standard sacrifice was a lamb or a goat. Um, If you couldn't afford a lamb or a goat, God's law made made a concession for that and said, if you can't afford a lamb or a goat, you can bring two turtle doves or two pigeons. Um, and so who were the pigeon salesmen extorting money from? Who are they taking advantage of? The poor. 
So this system of oppression had become so systematic, the culture had become so built around it, simply because they loved money more than the mission that God had given them. And as always happens, the rich became richer and the poor became poorer. There's a lot that could be said about that point, uh, but, but let me make the point that I'm trying to make. Idolatry always leads to sin, and sin always has collateral damage. We never sin without affecting ourselves, and we never sin without affecting other people. Lamentations 4 mentions the suffering of innocent children three times on the account of idolatry of someone else. Right? One of the things that idolatry does is, um, as it gives us a new value system, uh, it causes us to start characterizing our actions uh, in relationship to other people rather than in relationship to the value system of God. And so we use this kind of relativistic moral system as a tool to justify all kinds of things, right? Personal sin, uh, communal sin, uh, participation in a systematic kind of uh, a system of oppression. Say things like, you know, we, and we compa- we're always comparing ourselves to other people as we, as we engage with these things. We say things like, you know, at least I don't drink too much every weekend like some people. But what Jeremiah does is he invites us to look in and, and ask questions about ourselves. Who is suffering because of your drinking problem? The people around you, your loved ones, your future children? Or we could say, at least I'm not posting my thoughts on Facebook like her. I mean, I agree with her, but at least I'm not out there posting on Facebook. But think about it. Is anyone suffering because of your quietly held anger? Right? The person you refuse to listen to until they see things your way? Uh, is it the person you neglect to serve because you think they deserve what they have anyway? Um, is it the person you vent your anger to rather than dealing with it? Or sometimes it's systemic. Sometimes we say, at least I don't own any sweatshops. You know? Or at least most of my clothes don't come from sweatshops, like some people I know. Um, but the question is, is anyone suffering because of that dirt cheap pair of pants that you just bought? Is there a child in Bangladesh suffering? Is there a mother who lost her child in Bangladesh in a fire in one of those sweatshops? Or we could say, at least I'm not the one making the porn. At least I'm not the perpetrator. But who is suffering with your use of pornography? You are. But could it be the people who are being subjected to the demands of the industry? Could it be your future spouse? Could it be your current spouse? We often use relativism, comparing ourselves to other people to justify lives of sin, minimizing our actions and maximizing the actions of the bad guys in order to placate our sensibilities. The call here, though, is not to think less of other people's sin so that you're not you know, lifting yourself up. The call is not to think less of their sin. The call here is to think more of our own sins that we might truly repent, which involves lamenting our sin and calling to God out of the depths for rescue that he might lift us up. But hear me, because I don't want to be misunderstood. Soong Soong Chan Ra, in his book on Lamentations, points this out about the process of true lament. He said this, This process is not dwelling on the problem or failing to get over it. It is the very real recognition 
that sin has wreaked havoc with our existing systems and structures and that we fail to measure up to God's value system. Let me read that again. This process, true lament, is not dwelling on the problem or failing to get over it. It is the very real recognition that sin has wreaked havoc with our existing systems and structures and that we fail to measure up to God's value system. The goal in lamenting your sin, the goal in digging into your sin is not to dwell or wallow in shame or guilt. The, The goal is true recognition so that you can, by God's grace, take your sin and present it to God and ask him for help in your process of restoration. Let me read 2 Corinthians 7, verses 8 through 11. Um, The Apostle Paul writes about this, and I'd encourage you, if you haven't read it for a while, I'd read 2 Corinthians 7 this week. Paul says this. He's he's writing to the Corinthians. He'd written a letter to them before um, uh, that had brought them great sorrow because he was calling them out, essentially, in their sin. And he wrote this. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. And he goes on. The goal this morning, right? I think God's goal in this text and in teaching us about lamentation and repentance is not for us to wallow in shame. That is not lamentation. But neither is blowing past sin and pretending that it didn't happen and it doesn't need restoration. The goal is true earnestness to pursue holiness through restoration. Because here's the thing, your sin always distances you from God. Your sin always distances you from other people. Speaking of collateral damage, your sin always distances you from the people around you, especially those within the church. And the big sins and the small sins in your life are big and small only in your value system. God doesn't understand things that way. There's no big and small sins for God. There is faithfulness and unfaithfulness. Having the wrong value system is much more than simply living by the wrong set of principles that you can discover you know, the right way and then just kind of move on with the right way. Because idolatry and sin always leaves a trail of wreckage that needs to be reckoned with, that needs to be worked through. And the truth is that each of us suffers on account of both our sin and the sin of others. In Lamentations 4, here we see an honest, specific cry of lament from Jeremiah that invites us not to close our eyes and wish our brokenness away, but to enter in and engage with what ails us. The question, though, is how is this possible? What is the hope that we have? You see, Jerusalem was destroyed. Um, Are we going to be destroyed? Is that the future that we're looking forward to? Is that what we need in order to truly lament? Look with me at verses 21 through 22. In the closing two verses of this poem, we have an interesting contrast. Um, In the midst of Jerusalem's suffering, this foreign nation, right, the daughter of Edom, is rejoicing over Jerusalem's suffering. And Jeremiah acknowledges this rejoicing with a word of solemn warning. He says, Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. 
But to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. Goes on, your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish, he will uncover your sins. But in the middle of this prophecy against Edom, Jeremiah turns back to Jerusalem, the daughter of Zion, for just a moment in the first half of verse 22 to give a brief but wonderful promise. He says this, the punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. I want to zoom in on this first half of verse 22 for just a moment. God's judgment for his people has been fierce. Babylon uh, has invaded Jerusalem, but God's people have not been annihilated. Uh, In a sense, it seems like they wish that they would have been. If you look at verse 9, you see that because of the extent of their suffering, in a way, they wish they had been annihilated. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away, pierced by the lack of the fruits of the field. So they were under siege warfare. I won't go into it. Look it up. It's pretty terrible. Um, They were under siege, and so they were were starving. They were cooking their children uh, to provide food for each other. It was awful. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger. But they had not been annihilated. They'd been broken up, and through all of this suffering, they'd been sent off into exile. Into these exiles, Jeremiah is writing these words. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. The suffering described is awful uh, in this book. The destruction of Jerusalem, the loss of life, the suffering of innocent children goes on. But as we saw last week in Lamentations 3, even in the midst of awful pain and suffering, Jeremiah turns to reflect upon the steadfast love of God, recalling his faithfulness and calling to his mind the future hope of restoration. And here, Here in verse 22, God sends word to his people through the prophet Jeremiah, your punishment is accomplished, your exile won't last forever. This suffering will not last forever. In Isaiah chapter 40, uh, which was written at the same time as this book, roughly the same time, speaking about the same event, God sends comfort to his people. I want to read it. It's a little bit more comprehensive than this verse in Lamentations. Isaiah writes this uh, to his people who have been carried off into exile. He says, comfort Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her, note the parallel, cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she had received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. It goes on, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low, the uneven ground shall become level, the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What's going on here? What's going on here in Isaiah? What's going on here in Lamentations with this promise? This is crucial to understand. The holy stones, verse one, were scattered. Um, And uh, when the fire that the Lord kindled in Zion consumed its foundations, as it says in verse 11, God's people were in despair, right? They were carried out of the promised land. They lost the temple and with it, the place where God dwelled with his people. Uh, And this was a huge deal. Uh, This wasn't a, you know, it's okay, I'm totally confident God's gonna make everything right. They were left in exile wondering, maybe we actually did lose God's covenant this time. Maybe our sin was too great to forgive. Maybe our past became truly irredeemable. At this point in the story, it had been a thousand years since God's people had received the law. 
God had given them the law. He had given them kings. He'd given them the temple. He'd given them all kinds of blessings and prophets and covenants uh, to bless them with. And even with all of those things, God's people had squandered those gifts. Time and time again, they gave into their idolatry and sin to the point of bringing upon themselves this awful, unprecedented invasion uh, that wiped out all that they valued. But immediately, immediately in this suffering, God sends words of comfort. Be comforted, my people, for your exile will not be eternal. All along, God had been at work preparing and refining his people for what was to come. Even now, with these words of comfort, God's people would have to wait almost 600 years for the arrival of this promise. But we know now, uh, 2,600 years after this event, uh, that the promise did arrive. God's people had always known that God would grant them salvation for their sins. They always knew that God had promised to be with them, that he would be their God, that they would be his people, that they would be together in each other's presence. As we look back on this passage in Lamentations, we know how this promise had been fulfilled. When the fullness of time had come, Jesus Christ came to firmly establish God's presence on the face of the earth once and for all for the sake of redeeming his people. So when in Matthew 3, John the Baptist went around proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is at hand, his voice was signaling the arrival of the promises of God for his people that date back 600 years. God's plan of redemption has always been a renewed humanity and a renewed creation, and Christ established that. Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection accomplished salvation for his people once and for all, presenting a reality of a united kingdom of God, worshiping God with our whole hearts for all eternity. That is a reality that's already broken into the present, that has arrived, that arrived 2,000 years ago in the person and work of Christ. But here's the thing. It's not here in full just yet. There is still brokenness and sin in the world. The Bible tells us that we, together with all creation, still groan for a day uh, when the world will be without suffering, where there will be no more tears and anguish. The good news is that God promises this repeatedly through his prophets, all throughout the New Testament, Revelation. We have great hope in that day, but let's not ignore the rest of the Bible. The reality is that that world has not arrived just yet. We are still in a world in which we still wrestle with sin and we still suffer. By God's design, though, by God's design, Christ has completely secured our salvation for us offering it to us as a gift, and he invites us into a relationship with him where he invites us to take part in his ministry of reconciliation. We just read that passage uh, for the assurance of pardon today uh, during the liturgy. God has invited us into his ministry of reconciliation. We cannot do any work of restoration or reconciliation on our own. We cannot do it without God, but God will not do it without us. We have been invited in. One of my favorite passages in the Bible right now uh, is Second Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 3 through 11. Um, it's been a favorite for probably six months now. Uh, came across it on my plan, and it's beautiful. I'm going to read a part of it for you. God says, or Peter says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. <laughs> right? So God, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to to life and godliness. And what does Peter say next? He said, therefore, go hang out and wait for me to come back. Sit back and enjoy. No. 
He doesn't go on to say, therefore do nothing. He says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Verse five, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. We do not sit on the sidelines in our life. God has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Therefore, we are to live life making great effort to supplement our relationship with God with all of these qualities. If if indeed they are yours and they are increasing and they will prevent you from being fruitless in your mission, Peter goes on to say. God invites us to dig in with him and with each other as we become more and more like him every day. That list of things that Peter says to pursue, to make every effort to pursue, you can't do those sitting in a room by yourself. You have to engage one another. You have to engage the world around you, the suffering in the world around you. You have to serve and be served. Experience this in relationship with God's people. When your friend is in tears, what do you do? You weep with those who weep. If someone is suffering, what do you do? Do you point them to God's sovereignty and tell them to find joy? No. You mourn with those who mourn. And as you walk with them, watch how the everlasting joy comes through their relationship with God, which you are modeling for them as you are present with them. When you sin, what do you do? You confess to God and to one another. You die to that sin. You take your burdens and you lay them at the feet of the cross, at the foot of the cross. In a moment, we're gonna take communion and I would invite each of you to examine yourselves with sobriety. Um, In line with our time of confession that we had earlier in the gathering, I'd encourage you to not let that escape your mind. Uh, Don't jump past that. Call your sins to mind and bring them with you to leave them at the feet of Jesus as you receive his free gift to you in communion. His body broken for you for your sins. Speaking of collateral damage for sin, your sin never affects, your sin always affects you and your sin always affects other people. One of those people that that always affects is Jesus himself. It is every single one of our sins that is what hung Jesus on the cross and he took that cross willingly for us, gave himself for us and we celebrate that every week when we come to the table in communion, experiencing the washing of Christ's blood, washing over us, cleansing us from our sin. There is no one who is too far gone to receive the grace of God. We have not lost God's covenant love. We are not irredeemable. That goes against everything that Jesus said and did for us. Don't look past God's discipline. Don't look past the discipline of God, the suffering that you're enduring just so that you can get to the good stuff. Christian, take the discipline that God is walking you through as a gift from a loving father, as it says in Hebrews 12, who wishes to yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness in your life. One of the biggest warnings in the New Testament reveals the wonderful paradox of the kingdom, which undercuts every idol that we would seek to worship. Jesus in Matthew 16, verse 25 says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's a beautiful offer and it is a loud warning. If you pursue life in this world, then that's all that you'll get. If you pursue your idols, then you will get all that your idols have to offer and no more. But if you lay down your life for God and for the sake of others, then you will gain everything. 
verses 21 and 22, Jeremiah refers to the daughter of Edom, this foreign nation who is laughing at Jerusalem as she suffers. And what does he say? He says, rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land, but to you also this cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourselves bare. Your iniquity he will punish. He will uncover your sins. Judgment is coming for all sin. And there are those who scoff. There are those who laugh and give their lives to idols. If you give your life to idols, you will get all that idol has to offer. It can be pretty nice here and now, but that is where your reward ends. That's what it said. That is the truth of God's word. And we could sugarcoat this message for each other. Right? I could sugarcoat this sermon and say, you know, I'm saying this warning just in case you need to hear it, uh, but I think most of you guys are doing okay, so, so that's good. I could say that, but I don't want to. Lamentations is a book that was written to a suffering people who wanted to shut their eyes and ears to the suffering and look elsewhere. You can hear the exhaustion in Jeremiah as he writes. But that is not what they needed to do, and that is not what we need to do. I don't want you to look straight away at how you can fix things and move on. I want you to look at what is lamentable in your life. Look at what it's done. This is crucial. Know that the gospel of kingdom is for you and that it is much bigger than you that your sin has been paid for, but the kingdom of God is not a gospel of magic. <laughs> it's not a one-and-done antidote. It's not, a, it's not a gospel that jumps in and fixes and then leaves. It is a gospel of restoration, redemption, and reconciliation. What was once beautiful is now broken, and it must be restored. Not thrown out so that you can buy a new one, not sent off in the mail so that someone else can take care of it, but diagnosed patiently and dealt with, walked through. This is what I've been learning in this Lent season, that I need to slow down, that we need to slow down. Um, it's no accident that in, the, in our culture, it's hard for many reasons, but it's not new. Uh, it's not unique to our culture. It's not our, unique to our place in time. The suffering that Jerusalem endured, they endured because they didn't. Right? They didn't slow down. They didn't seek restoration. Let us not miss this. Now, today, when we have the promises of God that have arrived completely for us in Christ, let us not miss this opportunity to slow down our hearts, let them break over the sin in our lives, driving us to God in repentance. Letting them break over the sin that affects other people's lives, that causes other people to suffer, that would spur us on to action on their behalf. Let our hearts break over even our own suffering, not seeking the Band-Aid fix, but inviting brothers and sisters to sit with us and experience the miraculous, beautiful, wonderful work of restoration that God will do as we work through this together with one another, which means that we are doing it together with him. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for today and for your word and for your people, for this church. Thank you for everyone who is in this room. We know that we're not here by accident, Lord. We know that you're not taking us through this series and lamentations by accident. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would continue your patient work in our lives. God, that you would be glorified in our hearts as we take communion here in just a moment, as we sing songs, 
Help us to fix our eyes on you and run the race with patient endurance, knowing that it is your power that works powerfully within us. Help us not to jump past the suffering in our lives. Help us not be afraid of the suffering in our lives. But help us to engage with suffering with trust and hope and expectation that you are the God who restores. You are the only way. Thank you, Lord. Amen.